Welcome to Dean's Council, a podcast aimed at supporting university leaders holding one of the more critical jobs on a university campus. Your panelists, Ken Kring, Jim Ellis, and Dave Eikenberry, engage in conversation with highly accomplished deans and other academic leaders regarding the ever-complex array of challenges that deans face in one of the loneliest and most unique jobs in the academy. In 2009, Andrew Crowley left Ohio State to join Cornell University and was comfortably working as a chaired professor in the finance department at the J.C. Johnson Graduate School of Management, one of three business-oriented colleges Cornell was operating at the time. Roughly seven years later, top leadership at Cornell felt the benefits of a single college of business outweighed the longstanding practice back then of three separate business units. In my experience, major changes such as this are often not communicated well. In Cornell's case, the decision to merge was decided at a very high level and was abruptly announced in December of 2015 and was handed down as essentially a directive from the top. It was about this same time that Andrew was tapped for leadership, first as an associate dean for academic affairs in early 2016 Two years later, in 2018, he became Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and had oversight over the faculty side of the house. When the time came to merge the three schools in March of 2021, Andrew knew the Cornell organization well and was chosen as the inaugural Dean of the merged enterprise. Today, we hear Andrew's journey as to how he is managing this new college. There is no doubt that Cornell's move was shockingly cataclysmic and affected numerous stakeholders who had less of a grasp of what the benefits of merging could be, but seemingly were well aware of the downsides. Changes like this often leave little room for error. Thus, Andrew had to perform well. Nevertheless, in this podcast, we hear several key takeaways that we as leaders can learn from, even if we're driving change on a smaller scale. Here, Andrew shares tools he picked up along the way, including truly authentic active listening, principles for building a unified leadership team, and the necessity of thoughtfully messaging when driving change. Ken Kring and I hope you enjoyed today's session. Welcome, Andrew Caroli. We're here today to have a conversation with you. Delighted you've joined us. You're the dean of the SC Johnson College of Business, and we've got an exciting topic we're uh, interested in pursuing with you. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you very much, Ken and Dave. Love it. Thank you very much for inviting me to be part of this. You know, we've uh, we've both known you for a long time and have watched your uh, development. And interestingly, you know, the SC Johnson College of Business has been a, a, a unique and very visible uh, example of uh, a university that has really thought uh, strategically about uh, the bringing together of uh, interesting and compelling uh, divisions to make for, you know, what is now uh, uh, a strong and very purposeful enterprise. We'd love to hear your thoughts as you have been there since the very uh, beginning of this exercise. Give us a little history on uh, on this merger. Thank you, Ken, for the opportunity. And I, th- I think many of your listeners would probably find this interesting because while they may not undergo the kind of massive organizational structural change that we went through, there are probably a lot of aspects to it uh, that would be interesting 
for whatever kind of change uh, as leaders they may uh, they may prospectively be undergoing. But I guess I'll start by this, uh, Ken and Dave. Uh, I remember, like many in my college, uh, where they were sitting, what room they were in, when the email dropped on, I think it was December 12th, 2015, a pronouncement came forward from the university about that the fact that three formerly independently accredited business schools on this Cornell University campus would come together. And we had six months uh, to gear up and launch by uh, July 1, 2016. And I remember uh, my own reaction to that. And this probably foreshadowed the fact that I would enter into a dean type role in the college uh, at some point. But uh, I remember uh, my reaction in the room. I remember the people sitting around me and I remember just saying to myself, wow, this, this sounds like a really bold and exciting change. Bringing together the, the School of Hotel Administration, now newly named the Nolan uh, School of Hotel Administration, the Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management, undergraduate business program primarily, but not just, formerly or used to be just exclusively part of the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences and the Johnson Graduate School of Management. And I, I remember saying, wow, what a bold and innovative move. How exciting. And I looked around at my colleagues sitting in the room and uh, it wasn't the same reaction they were having. <laughs> they were having a reaction that was sort of lamenting um, what might be at risk of loss. So I guess my assessment of its boldness was definitely right on the money. And um, we immediately assembled a committee to try and figure out how to engage in this sort of new governance structure, the architecture that would represent this college. I wasn't part of that at the time. I entered into leadership at that time. And, and I just remember, I, I remember the challenges. I, I, I certainly in the first few years of the college, I remember the challenges. Some would say that perhaps the university didn't roll out the announcement of this enterprise as well as they could have. A lot of it came down from the board of trustees, the president and the provost, and it felt like, I think, to many in the community, and I think this is what they were lamenting, is the fact that maybe they just didn't feel like they were, they owned this decision. They were part of it. Certainly, the alumni reacted in pockets uh, in a negative way to this, and it took some time to build the narrative up about, about what the power of a comprehensive, full-scale breadth, scope, and scale uh, college of business could really represent. I think it took us some time to really figure out that narrative. I think we're in a better place now, uh, and it's taken some work. So I stepped into the role as dean two years ago. I had been preceding, preceding that three years as the deputy dean and dean of faculty. I mean, one of the reasons I think I was chosen for the role when I was two years ago now was because I I had a pretty good understanding of what our assets were, our incredible array of faculty, the phenomenal staff that supports this, this, uh, this large enterprise. And I had come to learn about the, the unique strengths of these three schools. Notwithstanding that, the leadership, when they appointed me, felt like we haven't, hadn't fully seized advantage of all the advantages that were available to us. And we undertook a massive task force in year, I guess that would be year six of the college, my first year as dean, where we uh, basically talked a lot about refining, restructuring, yet again, with the idea of 
addressing many of the things we had failed to address when we launched? I mean, why would why would you in a six month span when you announce something, uh, even well intentioned as that committee was to develop the infrastructure, feel like they had got it all right? They hadn't. So we did a big redo, uh, relook, reset, I would call it. And the provost uh, and I co-chaired that. I think we listened to approximately 250 voices, alumni, staff, students, uh, and definitely the faculty. And it was incredibly empowering, Ken and Dave, because I think one of the trustees pulled me aside after that challenging time, uh, those eight months of this year year six uh, reset period, this task force. They said, this was incredibly healthy because we were listening to our community in a way that we hadn't really before. The, the leadership of the university uh, had felt like they had the answers, they knew the path forward. This was a chance to actually listen. And I think that we're in a better place today than we were before that six year six task force reset because of the process of listening to our community. So if there's a lesson in terms of structural change that I would offer <laughs> to close out my answer to your first opening question, Ken, it would be the power of active listening for leadership. Uh, it, there, there's no substitute for it. And I'm not even set, standing here today telling you that we got everything right in that reset. It's a process of continuous improvement, but boy, oh boy, and it was painful uh, the, some of the things that were said were hard to listen to. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, um, but they were important to be heard. Uh, and uh, and I felt, uh, I feel like we're in a really much better place now. Uh, many, many things are, are in our favor uh, towards the next stage of our development as a college. And I'm, I'm excited to see it. That, that may be more, more than you were hoping to hear. No. Andrew, um, two questions as one. What were some of the fears that people had going into this process? Uh, some of the tensions that were realized? How did you quell those? And then um, a few minutes ago, you made reference to the benefits of the mergers. Could you articulate some of those? Um, in a, you know, what are some of the tangible benefits you yeah. realized? Well, the, the fears are easy to articulate. The, the fact is that each of these three schools had decades long uh, legacies of incredible success in their own right. And the fears among many, uh, especially those that are well seasoned among our faculty and our staff uh, that had devoted themselves to these schools and their success of these schools, worried about something at risk of loss, that somehow in the process of building a college as a platform for these three schools, something about the school's potential would be at risk of loss. And of course, it was critical for the college to be able to articulate what was the power of the platform. What was the power of the platform? And um, this is not meant to be a criticism of my predecessors uh, in any way whatsoever, but you know, in the, in the moment, I think that unfortunately, our articulation of what would have, could have been the power of the platform that could help to have mitigated somewhat the concerns uh, of what would be at risk of loss. They focused on the wrong things. 
They focused on the wrong things. We talked about building um, uh, sort of a uh, sort of a synergistic platform for things like alumni affairs and development, finance and administration, uh, student services, uh, you you name it, right? External relations. That it would somehow there would be a, a, a sort of a, a combination of these things that would realize some synergies that would uh, and and the problem, of course, with that narrative is it would sounded like a cost savings exercise, and and th this was not what it should have been about. It never should have been about that. What it should have always been about, and what I love talking about now, is the full realization of the potential of the college is in the power of the voice, the power of the voice. And the power of the voice comes through um, within the Cornell community, right? We are now one of, you know, there's 13 different colleges and schools, I think. We are now one of the biggest four. And it's pretty hard to ignore in sort of the internal dynamics of the university, the, the, the behemoth that is the Cornell S.C. Johnson College of Business in terms of the power of its voice. I think it's now with 250 faculty strong, um, and another 500 uh, staff just shy of that, um, and 45,000 alumni around the world, it's pretty. It's a lot harder now to ignore the the Cornell S.C. Johnson College of Business in uh, in circles uh, among the top business schools. It just is. You you have to think of us uh, when it comes to um, talking about you know the future of uh, of what business higher education and business might be, and I think that's what it should have always been about: the power of the voice. We didn't quite figure that out, and now I think we have. And uh, uh, so I think I answered your question, Dave. I think the fear of loss was the immediate concern, and um, we weren't in dealing with that fear of loss early on because we focused on the wrong side of the narrative of what the college could be. And now I think we are focusing on the on this. Um, and I spend a lot of my time talking to alums around the world about what the power of the voice means and giving them lots of examples of that. You know, beyond the rather extensive listening, what else did, did you and your team do to uh, sort of harness the new message or the refined message? It's a great question. It gets into some gnarly details uh, Ken, but uh, ultimately what we did was we we talked a lot about four things. I would say four basic things. Number one was streamlining the roles and responsibilities of the top level of leadership. So we retained three schools and three school deans for important reasons um, when we launched the college and created a college dean and a deputy dean at the time. And what we did uh, in, uh, there were ultimately about 35 recommendations that came out of these, and there were four big things. The first one was about streamlining roles and responsibilities. Many in our community felt like they didn't know who was in charge. And what we wanted to do, and listening to our community, was to present once and for all what I think they were always asking for, which is a shared leadership structure. So there is a college dean. There are three school deans. The three school deans focus on their school's respective degree programs and the students, as well as the alumni of those degree programs. But an important new responsibility for those school deans was to join the college dean in what we're calling the College Deans Council, which is a five-person 
shared leadership structure where there would be common understanding. Uh, this did not happen before. Uh, it would be oftentimes the, the messages that would come from leaders were discordant. This idea of a college dean's council, it's a lousy acronym, by the way, that goes with the CDC. Uh, and I apologize every time I have to use it. But but the idea of this college dean's council is something, like I said, the, the community was asking for. And, uh, you know, we disagree among the five of us on many different issues, but we share the issues. Everybody takes ownership of the issues. And we ultimately come to a decision among the five of us. And we stand up before the community with a common understanding of what the decision is. And we own it. We own it. And there's no dis we there's no discordance. Uh, in in the messages that come from those five individuals on the big issues of the day. People wanted it. They asked for it. We gave it to them. Second, uh, we created a much more streamlined budget structure that is more akin to what all the other colleges were. We had a more complex segmented budget structure, and this is a uh, we created a much more um, integrated budget structure for the college. Really important for decision making. A third big thing that we did um, in the key recommendations was to refine what we're calling our shared support services. And we actually defined among our support services, alumni affairs and development, finance administration, external affairs, uh, student services, we defined which should be much more centralized and which would be more decentralized and the reasons for them. We did things early on because we had to do them quickly. Here we actually thought it through. And I think we've got a much better uh, much better oversight of these things. The College Deans Council has part of steering committees that oversee these things. Again, so there's less pulling and tugging on these shared resources and there's more coordination and cohesion. Uh, the fourth and final one is the goal of creating a a much more coordinated approach to our actual curriculum development and empowering the areas to have much more say in the advancement of the curriculum, but obviously giving ultimate responsibility for the curriculum, for the school-affiliated faculty, uh, for the schools who oversee those respective programs. So the MBA program, exclusively the domain of the Johnson Graduate School of Management, but the area groups that span the college could have useful input into the development of these curricula. So we basically, what, it, what I'll say, better coordination and clarification of faculty oversight of the curriculum that we hadn't quite figured out well enough in the first five years. So one, two, three, four, uh, 35 recommendations endorsed by the provost in November of 21 with the idea, Andrew and uh, the College Deans Council, go implement. That was the big reset. Andrew, could you elaborate just a little bit more on this uh, CDC? It's a horrible acronym. I agree. Yeah, it is a horrible um, acronym. Yeah. But um, so you have a democratic imagery building around this group. So two ideas here. Does, does this, democ this democracy impede your ability to say, we're going this direction? Or have you preserved that? And then secondly... This notion of five people in the room, each bringing a diverse, uh, maybe conflicting perspective. But when you walk out of the room, you know, it sounds like there's a trust that, you know, I may disagree with you, but we're going to we're going to have a unified front. 
how did you establish that and how do you maintain that um that unity how i do it i i i don't know if there's there's some unique skills in all of this like i said i think the first order of business dave was to actually build it because the community asked for it and so we built it the next thing was to how to act uh make it come alive, right? Uh, to, to actually operationalize it. I think we walked into it with a group of five people that actually were prepared to build trust with each other. There was already trust building in effect before that, but there were just these events that would lead to, uh, I'm trying to give some examples here, but you would have before the creation of the college dean's council, maybe one of the school deans advocating to the college dean without the presence of the other two school deans uh, making a case for a larger marketing and communications budget being driven towards the programs associated with their school for the following reasons, one, two, three, four, five. And the college dean uh, acceding to that but the other two school deans not realizing that this shared resource, this shared entity of marketing communications was being pulled in the direction of one of the schools that might come at the expense of the betterment of the programs of the other two schools. And there was always just a little bit of uncertainty, a little bit of angst among the three school deans that one was getting disproportionately more of the shared centralized resources than the other. And so I think that's what the community was calling for. There can be disagreement. But I think one of the beautiful things about this shared leadership structure, Dave, among the five towards trust building, is they understand that if it is in fact the case that the ultimate decision is that school X gets two times what the other two get in this instance, that this is a multi-period game that is repeated, and there will be a time where the other two get their chance. And I think that that's where the trust building comes from. And that's why it's so important for the community at large to have the the unified front that we share. We all own this. We all understand this decision. We understand it came out this way and we all own it. And this is for the greater good of the enterprise. Um, I can tell you, Dave, there are very few instances that I, that I can barely even remember where I I had to use the final decision rights of the college dean sitting around the college dean's council and say, no, sorry, gang, this is the way we're going, not that way. I don't feel like it's been ever a situation like that, sort of the autocratic, pulling the autocratic card out of the deck. It's always been something we've we've been able to work out for the last year and a half that we've been functioning like this. So. Would it be fair to say that you know building trust took as much time as was needed and that you're it's a continuous where you spend a lot of time in deliberation and discussion? Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think that's right. I think there's some uh, and it's a continuous, even as I sit here right now, Ken, we are always continuously working hard to fill the trust bank, right? Among us all. Yeah, it's definitely a continuous process, but I feel like we're in a really good place. I mean, we're making good decisions. I feel good about the decisions that we're making and how we're making them. I don't think about how tactically the college dean needs to diplomatically get 
members of the college dean's council on side where they're seeing things different. I don't think about that. I just know that information sharing and positive constructive mindedness is probably two critical ingredients to making stuff move forward. And I, I definitely do that. And how about mutual respect? Uh, mutual respect and admiration for each of the individuals that are part of this. Actually, that's a lesson probably writ large in any enterprise is um, in that that wasn't always there uh, in the early days of the college, that each of the three schools, especially the seasoned faculty, looked at the faculty in the other schools and weren't sure why it is that they chose to do things the way they did things to be. And they it wasn't exactly like there was as much mutual respect as I, I think we've come around. I think we've come around uh, in a big way. We're not all the way there, but there's much more mutual respect for the strengths of each of the three schools and what they bring to the table than ever before. Andrew, is that culture integration just a matter of seasoning or did you take some affirmative steps to nudge that? Yeah, I think there is seasoning. Um, and if if there's something I did, what I did uh, in the last few years and the three years before that is spent a lot of time learning and just sharing, shouting to the tops of my lungs to the internal community and the external community, just how incredible are our assets. Forget about the acrimony. Look at what this incredible person over in this group of this, you know, in this area group is doing that is exceptional. We should all be celebrating that. Let's all celebrate this. So this, I, I think this optimism, which I genuinely feel deep in my core, I think that's got to be a little bit of a help to, to at least draw attention to our our strengths and assets uh, where people may not have fully realized it. But yeah, there's a there's some seasoning that just builds toler greater tolerance. Like it's sort of a a baseline improvement that happens just from the seasoning of the college. Um, but but if there's a dosage that I added on top, uh, I would say uh, not just me, but uh, uh, is just just a sheer optimism for what the enterprise can be. Uh, I, I, I literally wake up every day and think about that. How did you handle some of the key systems that uh, in this integration? So even I'm thinking specifically about promotion and tenure and and uh, annual merit review, both on the the faculty side and the staff side, do we allow the three schools to dominate that with what kind of a model did you adopt? Yeah, so we actually had built the model before that, and it took some time uh, to get it working. We created a, uh, an integrated um, what we call a performance model, um, something that I did in my dean of faculty, and we continue with it today, where we uh, develop a system of recognition of um, strong positive outcomes for faculty. You're talking about faculty now, right? Where we evaluate them in a disciplined, data-driven uh, process. And we put a lot of resources actually into this, into the building of this. Um, and we have a whole team uh, that develops this. And of course, that's no substitute for judgment, which ultimately needs to take place through the College Dean's Council, that will make these final big uh, decisions on SIP as salary improvement and bonuses and market adjustments. But we created the discipline 
of the database to sort of importantly guide us. Uh, so that I think was in process. It has, yes, taken time for the community to learn to adapt to this and appreciate all of it. And no, we can't share every specific detail of every specific metric with the community, but they have a pretty good sense of what we think are important things. And, uh, and hopefully that drives them in the annual review cycle and SIP process. But here's a fun story, Dave, uh, on the structural side that we've just recently been dealing with, coming out of the recommendations of that uh, sixth year uh, task force, that reset. Ten years ago, the Johnson Graduate School of Management had made the case to the University Senate to go to an eight-year tenure clock, while the other two schools, ten years ago, kept their six-year clock. And so when the college was formed seven years ago, we had... Can you imagine faculty with different tenure clocks? One of the first things that the community said, could you please fix this? And so we're actually in the midst of working on, on harmonizing our tenure clocks. That's a big structural change. And it's very much a part of the promotion, uh, reappointment and tenure process. So, Other areas of measurement and, and, and where you measure, how do you promulgate or put some of those messages out to the broader communities? Good question, Ken. Um, two really important things with the reset, uh, or at least with my appointment, that we changed with the annual review process is we added two components to the annual review self-report where we would compel faculty to report on performance. One was with respect to contributions to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. This is a core value for the college, core value for the university, and we needed to live this value and so we incorporated this uh, into the annual review process. That's one I'm really proud of. Uh, we require every single applicant to every faculty position to offer a statement uh, to qualify in. So why shouldn't we be requiring faculty every year to be reporting on their contributions? Uh, and that's what we did. The second one, very much a part of our mission statement is a college, which is about a business college that is meant uh, to harness the power of business to transform people's lives and society, that's what we think about ourselves as, is to have a component of our annual review process that focuses on your contributions to the greater impact on society, to the business community and to society beyond. And uh, this is not easy for faculty who are used to just simply counting citations and the number of articles they published in top tier journals to think about the broader impactfulness of their work. So we're early days there, Ken. Those are two big changes. Really pleased and proud that our leadership team adopted those, and uh, and we're uh, we're making them making those things sing now. That's great. Well, Andrew Caroli, thank you for this conversation. It's a fascinating, unique, and complex undertaking. Uh, wonderful to hear about it uh, from someone who's been there from the very beginning. Great conversation. And thank, thank you, Ken and Dave, for inviting me. What you guys are doing with this podcast is fantastic, uh, incredibly useful, incredibly uh, uh, valuable, and, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. We're, we're thrilled. What a great conversation, Andrew. Ken, what did you think about Andrew's comments just now? You know, I really, really enjoyed that conversation. You know, a Andrew is a active 
you know, learner. Yeah. And, and to his point, you know, has become an active listener. And, you know, having been there, you know, in the trenches as deputy dean, when this rather uh, audacious uh, merger occurred, you know, both he's seen it, he's learned, and you can just feel the, the uh, improvements that have been made as a result of his, you know, his uh, contributions. R- really fascinating. You mentioned this power of this of active listening, as he referred to it, and I, I just, I just think that is so powerful. Um, you know, in the corporate community, sometimes it's there's a, although I think most CEOs would disagree with this, but there's this impression that it's my way or the highway, kind of, you know, it's the prevailing leadership style. But in the academy, and and also in in organizations with high intellectual output it just doesn't work that way and and um, a lot of the folks in the production function really need to be actively or feel like they're actively engaged and heard in informing the direction and i i thought what was also interesting to see was that andrew wasn't threatened by that feedback he actually leaned into it and for example this uh this council of deans committee that he put together creating this, um, which appeared to be a lot more than just lip service, this notion of a democratic approach to leadership, which that can be difficult if you're, you know, running a large complex organization the way he is. It threatens your ability to to drive change. But in his case, he's it's it's really essential for him to drive the change that he needs to make. Right. And there's a flip side to being um, an optimistic, you know, evangelistic. And that is, you know, it's harder for people to see you listening and to not feel you've got to make the immediate decision. I mean, I I like to use the term, it's important to be undecisive, not indecisive, but undecisive. And he's he's shown some aptitude for being undecisive and, uh, and bringing others along. I also found it refreshing, Ken, about this authentic leadership style that he seems to bring to this appointment. He believes this to his core. And, you know, when you're a change, when you're a change agent, (laughs) you've got to walk the walk. And there's a level of accountability and this just this authentic approach to to this organ it's so wonderful to see and so vital um across so many different types of leadership challenges that we all face yeah i mean you're you to 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 be a leader in the academy it's really nice to actually believe in the academy and to believe in the role of you know the professorship the staff the student i mean you know his respect for the uh, entire institution is really uh palpable what a great uh, what a great interview that was, Ken. Great, great conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dean's Council. This show is supported in part by Corn Ferry, leaders in executive search. Dean's Council was produced in Boulder, Colorado by Joel Davis of Analog Digital Arts. For a catalog of previous shows, please visit our website at deanscouncil.com. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at deanscouncil.com. And finally, please hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so that you can automatically receive our latest show.